going to Oklahoma on missions. I've talked to a lot of folks in the church over the last couple of months. <coughs> Excuse me, a lot of folks in the church over the last couple of months. And one of the things that keeps getting said to me is we've got to get outside the walls of the First Baptist Church. Can't just be the county seat First Baptist Church, big church in town. We need to get outside of these walls. And you see what happened to the folks that went to Oklahoma and how their eyes were opened up, how their hearts were opened, how there were ministries that were already there that we became a part of and helped them to do things even better, how God touched our lives there. We need to get outside the walls. We want to be a mission-minded church. But who do you go? And what do you do? And where do you go? And how do you go? tell you a couple of little stories real quick. I was getting gas at the corner of Sherling Drive and Gray Highway at the BP station there. If you've ever gotten gas there, you know that you're a target when you pull into that place because there's a lot of guys that come up and walk and, and will ask you for money. And I'm, you know, you may be in homeless ministry and tell me that I'm wrong, but usually when somebody comes up and asks me for money, they don't get it. I'm figuring most of them are going to use it for an addiction of some sort, not going to be really using it for the purpose that you said. And unless I just feel really moved by the Lord to do something, there's something that catches my heart or my eye or my attention, you're not getting anything out of me. And I'm sitting there that day and I'm pumping the gas, lean up against the car, it's been a long day at work. I look up and I think, oh, for heaven's sakes. Because I can see the guy's radar is working and I'm right in the middle of the radar. And he walks up to me and he says to me that he's from out of town, heard that before. Here are my wife and my kid, heard that before. Ran out of money, don't have anything to eat, heard that before. And then he said, could you go into Domino's and buy us a small pizza for supper tonight? And I looked into his eyes and I saw in his eyes something that I don't see from the other guys. This guy looked like he needed something to eat for his family. So I finished pumping the gas. I went over into the Domino's. I ordered him a large pizza. I thought I was doing a cool thing. And then when I left, I thought, wife, kid, him, he was a pretty decent-sized guy. Probably should have bought two. But at least I got him a large, got what they wanted, got him a couple of drinks, paid for it, gave him my God bless you. I left, drive around town for a little bit. I'm leaving town after I did my errands. And sure enough, he's walking down the hill. You know, you pass Walmart, you go down the hill, and then on the left there, there's that little strip motel. That's where he was headed. Oh, cool. It's cool. It's a good thing. Ben comes home from India uh, yesterday. Serving at not, this was not a mission project that he was on. It was a school, summer abroad, work for a month, set up a psychological survey kind of thing that they're doing over there, some, some research that they're working on. Here are some posts that they put on their site about the people that they saw. The children here are unlike any I have ever seen before. To walk into a classroom filled with five-year-old children that have the biggest smiles on your face that you have ever seen, and in the same moment when they look away, those smiles disappear. They seem to be at a loss as to how to help their children, talking about the parents. They don't have any resources to fall back on if their child isn't doing well in school or if they have a child that is disabled. They can only resign them to the fact 
that their child will not make it to a better life. There is no other option for them. At four years old, some of my children have scars and burns lining their arms and necks, many still fresh. They do not cry or laugh. They sit and stare, constantly in misery, but too scared to show it. I learned that every hour, several women and children are trafficked in India, children sold by their own fathers or neighbors, women trafficked by their own boyfriends or sold by their husband. They're sold for less than 500 rupees and are forced to work or beg in the streets. 500 rupees is $8.30 when I looked it up the other day in the exchange rate. But then Ben told me a story yesterday. It was the one that just absolutely haunts me. While he was in India, he made friends with somebody who worked with him, and he made friends with him and his wife, have a little child. And when it came time for Ben to go, they said, is there any way you can take our child with you? There's hope in America. They can have a life there. A mom and a dad were willing to give their child up to somebody to give their child hope. What is it God's calling us to do? Where's he calling us to go? What is outside the walls? Where are we to go? What are we to do? We're going to look at some scripture this morning because it'll come as no surprise to you that I think the only place we can learn about what God wants us to do is to go to Jesus. Jesus tells us, See him, you see God, you see Jesus at work, that's what we're supposed to do, that's what we're going to look at. Scripture this morning comes from John chapter 5. We're going to do something a little differently this morning, we're going to post it up on the screens, right? There it is, John chapter 5, and as things would work out for me, this particular scripture has a textual variant in it. And so I want to give you a little heads up right quick so that nobody has a heart attack, falls over, or goes into any kind of spasms. If you will look in your Bible, when you get to verse 3 and verse 4, chapter 5 of John, 1 through 18, when you look at chapter, verse 3 and verse 4, in your Bible it probably has brackets around it and a footnote, or it could be in italics with a footnote, or if you're using the English Standard Version, which is what I'm using, it won't be there. It will be as a footnote. And the footnote says... This text, or these verses not found in the earliest manuscripts. Folks, it doesn't mean there's an error in the Bible. If you read read these verses in that or not in that section, you'll find out it just explains things a little bit more. I'm even going to use it as I preach because it explains things a little bit more. It is simply a textual variant. Do not swallow your tongue. Okay? Just want to make sure, because it's going to be different when you see it. And I thought, first thing somebody's going to say, he's used a liberal text. Oh, get a grip. (laughs) After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, 
and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he answered them, listen, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. That is why, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now the scripture, this could have been the Passover that they're talking about could have been the Passover, but, but John doesn't think it's important to really tell us what holiday it was. It was just a Jewish holiday, and his point is, is it's a religious holiday, and Jesus did what a good Jew was supposed to do then. He went to Jerusalem to celebrate the holiday and to worship God, and while he was in Jerusalem, he ministered while he was there, and he went to where the needy people were. Needy people who didn't necessarily go to church, people who didn't necessarily know about the church, and certainly at this particular place, people who couldn't even go to a church. That's the place that Jesus went. He went to where the need was. Now the walls of Jerusalem have a number of gates around the walls, and this particular gate was called the Sheep Gate for a very logical reason. It's where the sheep came into the town to be sold, and at the end of the day, if they didn't get sold, the sheep got walked outside again. You can sort of imagine what kind of place that was, right? Sheep sort of don't have potty training, as it were. So we've got that, and right by that is this place called Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy. This house of mercy, there's speculation, historical speculation, they don't have it proved, they don't know for a fact, but they believe that this was pools that the Jews had used for their purification. You know, there's all sorts of purification rituals that they'd used for their purification rituals, and at these pools they'd built five colonnades. And the colonnades are sort of like pavilions where when the people got wet or before they were going to get wet, they could go there, they could change clothes, they could go back, they could dry off. That's where they went. They had the five porticos, the five colonnades, the five pavilions, they would go there. But over time, the mission of Bethesda changed because those waters were seen to have curative powers. And that's what that verse 3 and verse 4 talks about, is that at a particular time, no particular time, no set schedule, an angel of the Lord would stir up the waters. And when the waters got stirred up, the first person into the water would be healed. The first person. Only the first person. Don't know when it's going to happen, but we know it's going to happen, and if we can get you into the water, then you're going to be healed. They had hope. 
The people that gathered in that place over time started to be people who needed healing. They needed something. They were really, really needed, really, really needy, and they wanted hope. And this gave them just a smidgen of hope. Now, these were really needy people. A multitude, it says, of blind, lame, paralyzed people that made this place their daily hangout, sitting there every day, waiting, always waiting to see one thing. I just want to see the water stir up. I just want to begin to see it bubble just a little bit. Just something. Did you see that? Is it, did it? That's what they'd be doing all day, every day. And loved ones and friends hung around them because some of these people didn't move so good. And if they were ever going to have a chance of getting in the water, they were going to need somebody to help them that maybe when the waters are stirred, their friend could come up and help them get into the water and they could be the first one in the water. Now, I want you to notice something here. Jesus did not go to them. Now, I don't know about you folks. It's always sort of bugged me a little bit. Who did Jesus pick to help and not help? Because, see, Jesus didn't help everybody. He didn't start in Jerusalem knocking door to door saying, excuse me, do you have the cough of the common cold or do you have end-stage cancer? I'm here to help. He didn't do any of that. He passed people by. And he walked into this place where there was a multitude of people right here in Bethesda, people everywhere, and he walked by these people. Why did he do that? What was on his mind? Who was he looking for? Who was needy enough? Who was needy enough to draw his attention? Verse 5 says, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Do you think that was the reason? Do you think that was the reason that Jesus picked him? He'd just been there so doggone long. 38 years, sitting by the water, wanting to get in. I don't think that was the reason. This is where I think it comes to. Listen to this exchange. Jesus says to him, do you want to be healed? You want to aggravate me? Let me give you all a a hint of a way that you can aggravate me. I can walk up to you and I can say, is this white or not? And if you go, well, it's a piece of paper and you're holding that piece of paper in your hand and uh, it's sort of at a... At about a four foot off the, is it white or is it not? Yes or no? That's what I want to know. I didn't ask you an open-ended question. If I had, I'd, I'd ask you one. Jesus did not ask this man an open-ended question. He asked this man, do you want to be healed? How did the man answer Jesus? He said to him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Does that sound a little odd to you? Here's what I heard the man say. He said to me, yes, I do want to be healed, but there is no hope for me. I have been here forever. I'm going to be here forever. I will never be the first one in the water. In his voice, you can hear a voice of a sound of resignation. You can hear despair. You can hear desperation. When you look into the eyes of somebody that's truly, truly heartbrokenly needy and you see that emptiness or you see that haunting in their eyes, that's what I hear in this man's voice. Think of his situation. There are a multitude of people there, blind, lame, paralyzed, all of their friends, 
all of their loved ones are there, do you think for a skinny minute that one of those friends was going to stop and help him when the water stirred? If your mother was there by that pool at Bethesda, and you've been there with your mother for weeks and months and maybe years waiting for the water to stir, and you look down and you see a little glimmer, and you go, today's the day. Would you turn to your mama and say, look, mom, <laughs> look, I realize that we've been here about two and a half years. Dude over here has been here for 38 years. I'm going to help him down in the water today. We'll get to you next time. Really? Would you? Would you? No, you wouldn't. You absolutely wouldn't. You'd be throwing elbows and heels trying to drag your mama as fast as you could to get her down into that water so that she wouldn't be paralyzed or sick or blind or lame or whatever anymore. People who are needy are not oblivious to what's going on around them. They know they're not going to get help. He knew he would die there one day. Just as much an invalid on the day of his death as he was on the day of his arrival. And you know something else? I don't think you ever looked Jesus in the eye. Have you ever met somebody like that? That asked you for money, that needed some help, that was in a, a horrible situation, and they'd look at your chin, your head, both sides, they'd look down, do the schoolboy shuffle, do everything except look you in the eyes. I don't believe this guy looked Jesus in the eye. When you look at the scripture, we know already that Jesus is going to heal him. We'll circle back to that in just a second. But look at, look at what happened here. It happened to be on the Sabbath day when Jesus chose to do his mission work. I guess there isn't a day that you're not supposed to do mission work, right? But the religious rules of that time said, no, you don't do anything on the Sabbath day. That includes healing people. So the church rulers came up to the sick man. They asked him, where do you get off carrying your mat on the Sabbath day? And he told them that the one who healed me told me to do it. And they said, no, just who would that be? Scripture says in verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Let me ask you a question here. In your life, in your life, when you have had to make a difficult decision and you've gone to somebody and asked them for help, this is hard. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. I need some advice. I need somebody to talk to me. And you've made the decision, and it was an earth-changing decision in your life. Can you not close your eyes right this minute and see their face? Can't you? Even when my blood's not pumping all the way to the top, I can do that. Close my eyes, and I can see some of their faces. Even today. This man did not look up at Jesus, I don't believe. I don't believe he saw the face of the man. He was so hopeless, so much in despair. He didn't look up when Jesus questioned him. But then Jesus said, now notice something here. No faith on this man's part at all. He did nothing, had nothing. When somebody says to you, you've got to have faith for Jesus to do something in your life. Jesus can do what Jesus wants to do. And in this particular case, he had picked this man out for the day of salvation. He walks up to this man who did not look him in the eye, who had no hope, was totally in despair. And he says, get up, 
Take up your bed and walk. Now this scripture, this word get up is also translated rise up or arise. And if you read over and over to verse 21, you hear Jesus say, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Son gives life. One commentator commentator described it like this. He said, this was the intervention of Jesus in the condition of this man's living death. Doesn't that describe where this guy was? Living death, a life with no hope, no future, only a constant reminder that you are tragically different from everybody else on the face of this planet and you always will be. That's where you are. Dead in his need until Jesus chose. Jesus walked up. Jesus said to this man, no big spiel. Get up. Get up. Now think of it. This guy's been laying there for 38 years. You've seen people, I shouldn't say that. Let me rephrase this. You have uh, heard people say to other people, look at the bird legs on that person. Can you? Imagine what this guy's legs looked like after 38 years of not walking. Muscles atrophied up to nothing. He had toothpicks sticking out from under that robe. And Jesus said, get up. And those toothpick legs, those atrophied muscles suddenly became strong. That balance that he had not used to hold himself up for 38 years became such good balance that not only could he stand up, he could bend over, roll up his mat, pick his mat up, take the counterweight and go walking. And where did he go walking to? He went walking into the temple, straight to the place where he knew God would be so he could praise God. One other thing to notice here, too. When Jesus healed him, he didn't make him pay for it. He didn't say, no, wait a minute, brother, I've got to tell you about the salvation plan. I've got to walk you down the Roman road. He didn't do any of that. He healed the guy, and he left. He walked away from the guy. But you look at verse 14, it says, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Do you believe that happened by accident? A chance encounter? Jesus just happened to bump into this guy in the, in the temple. Do you think that's what happened? Jesus knew the needy person he was looking for. He knew he was the most hopelessly pathetically hopeless person in that whole house. He was the living dead. Jesus healed him, and then Jesus went back and found him. The scripture says Jesus found him. He didn't bump into him. It wasn't like he was walking through the temple and bumped into his, oh, 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 it's you. Hey, man, notice you're well. Hey, isn't that cool? Go your way now. Don't sit. That did not happen. Jesus went looking for the man to let him know, listen, number one, you have been healed by the power of God now. Go your way and sin no more that nothing worse may befall you. Go your way. Draw to God so that the worst thing that you're separated from him for all eternity doesn't happen to you. Jesus knew where he was. He deliberately went to where he was. He deliberately delivered the message that that man needed to hear. You are healed physically, spiritually. What do we learn from missions about this? What do we learn about missions from what Jesus did here? First, we can't and we shouldn't help everybody. For a myriad of reasons, we can't help everybody. Jesus said, the poor you're going to have with you always. So who in that batch do you pick? 
Second, we can and must help some people because our Savior gave hope to the living dead. He gave hope to the living dead. And you know, that doesn't mean that you have to be desperately poor. Has there ever been a time in your life that you felt like the living dead? That you had no hope? That you were stuck? That this is the way it's going to be for the rest of time? I can never, ever, ever be different than what I am right now. And I know that I'm different from everybody else and I hate it. Is that possibly you? We must pray for God to lead us to those folks so we can minister his hope, minister his hope to them and offer them the eternal salvation that God has given us in Christ. And third, we must pray for God to show us who and how to minister to folks. We need to pray for the necessary resources. And I don't mean just money. We're always looking at money. We're always looking at money. But as we pass time together, we're going to learn more and more about how each one of us are in this sanctuary or in this body of Christ for a particular reason. Every last one of us. And your reason is not the same as her reason. That's not the same as his reason. That's not the same as my reason. And we're going to learn more and more that some people in this church were given a heart for missions that just absolutely is about to explode and they don't, want, they don't know what to do with it. And we need to pray to God that he would move those people to teach us and show us who aren't that mission-minded, who would lead us to help them do these things. Because every one of us has a job to make this a whole church. And there are folks in here that have that gift. How Teach us how to minister effectively to people who truly are outside of the realm of our comprehension. I cannot comprehend telling somebody, take my child. I can't comprehend that. I will fight you for my child. How do we do that? Jesus said, you did not chose me. choose me. But I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus promised. He promised. He promised. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. When he's talk, we're talking about ministry here, when we ask Jesus will keep his word. If we're serious about getting outside of these walls, we need to pray. Father, show us where to go. Show us what to do. Show us who can lead us. And he will answer the prayer because he is God and he does not lie. And Father, we thank you so much this morning that you've preserved the story to tell us, that you've given us the example through Jesus, not the example, you've given us the picture through Jesus of who you are, Father. That when we look at Jesus, we see you, and we see Jesus reaching out to people and ministering to people that I don't know, I don't know that I could, not in my own power, but I know that we can in your power. Father, show us where outside this church is. 
Help us to minister so that we don't squander the ministry, do it unnecessarily, if you will, or ineffectively, but that we see who you bring to us and you, who you bring us to, and we minister to those people and see Jesus be born in their hearts. Give them hope. Give them encouragement. Help them to see that there is a better day. Please, Father, help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. And this morning, you may be one that's sitting there that feels hopeless, that there is nothing you can do, that it will always be this way. I'm telling you now that Jesus can change that. He will change that. He gives us hope. Maybe not this minute, oh, it'll be fixed tomorrow. He gives us hope knowing that we're in his hand and he will take us and make us into the image of Jesus and that he gives us hope. This morning, if you don't know how to know Jesus, you want to talk more about Jesus, come down and we'll talk to you. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, I'd ask you to come forward at the hymn of invitation. If you want to join the church, pray at the altar, pray where you are. But this moment, you're going to leave here in just a minute, your phone's going to start going off, and there are people to talk to and things to do and places to go eat. Don't go there just yet. Stay in the house. Stay in the presence of God. Take a moment and tell him how much you need him.